Hey friends, I'm Christine Chappell, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In today's episode, we chat with Drew Hunter about his book, Made for Friendship, the relationship that halves our sorrows and doubles our joys. For more help on this topic, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Drew Hunter is the teaching pastor at Zionsville Fellowship in Zionsville, Indiana. He previously served as a minister for young adults at Grace Church of DuPage and taught religious studies at College of DuPage. Drew and his wife, Christina, have four children. Hey there, Drew. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, before we get started in our conversation, would you spend a few minutes sharing about why you wanted to write this book? Sure. Yeah, it was a a process that took uh, several years of just thinking about this topic of friendship. And a few factors came together for me in, in this season. So one was just noticing about, I guess it's been maybe 10 years ago now, we were starting to see these trends and in a little bit of discussion, it's certainly picked up now, but a little bit of discussion about the decline of friendship um, in our culture. And uh, studies just continued to come out showing striking statistics about the declines in friendship that, you know, that matched my experience um, in talking with people as well. And so even just recently, Cigna Health Insurance found that over half of the people that they surveyed said that they sometimes or always feel like no one really knows them well at all. And something like in the mid 40% or about 40% responded to a question that said relationships aren't meaningful. So that, that means, I mean, studies will show different things, but this is one of the hottest trends in sociology now. And about 10 years ago, the, you know, it was the beginnings of recognizing that we really do have not just an issue of lacking friendship and community, but it's been a steep decline in just the past 10, 20, 30 years. And we're seeing that pick up, not just in our culture, but, but across the globe. So noticing those cultural trends is, of course, concerning. And then, you know, I was working in a local church context and noticing, you know, wanting to really emphasize community. I'd seen a lot of resources come out emphasizing community as a topic. Uh, but then as I started to experience that and, and cultivate that in my church, you know, it became clear that people can really value the topic of community. Mm-hmm. They can actually be really engaged in different groups, valuing the church, valuing small group contexts, and still not actually have anyone in their life that really knows them deeply and that they're actually sharing everyday life throughout the week, heart to heart, soul to soul with. So um, I was encouraged by a renewed emphasis and community in churches at that time. And I'm grateful that that trend's continued, but we've still been lacking something. And then the other part of it is just noticing in the Bible. So as this was on my mind, um, I was studying Proverbs and trying to trace some of the key themes in Proverbs, and the topic of friendship uh, stood out to me because I was expecting Proverbs to have a lot of wisdom and things to say about relationships, different kinds of relationships, but I was really struck by the very pointed statements about friendship and the way that it, it appeared to highly value friendship. And then that took me to think about Jesus and how he called himself the friend of sin, or people called him the friend of sinners. He called his disciples his friends, mm-hmm. and he said, talked about the cross as an act of friendship. So all of these things showed me that we really have a gap between how much we value friendship and how much the Bible does and, and other things. So that kind of began the conversations with 
other people in my life. And it was kind of affirming that we really do need to think about this. And, and then at the time, there really were not many resources at all, especially from a Christian perspective on friendship as a, as a direct focus. I really appreciate that you made that observation about the small groups and being for you know, Christian community, yet somehow there are still being a disconnect between the small groups we're a part of and the, and actually fostering true, meaningful friendships. Because I think that's been my experience and what I have observed as well. And it just makes me ask, you know, how did it get to that point where, you know, in the past, friendship was so highly treasured and valued. And now today, it seems to be going in a completely different direction. So as you researched for this project, what were some of the observations you made about how friendship is approached in today's cultural context versus how it has been viewed historically? Yeah, so you know the, the friendship really has been valued differently, both in the Bible and then throughout history and church history in particular. So one of the ways in which we just notice how we approach it different is just from an initial valuation standpoint. So C.S. Lewis uh, wrote about friendship, and he called it the greatest of worldly goods in his view. And he, he even gave advice to say, you find out where your friends are and you move there. And so I think in our context, you know, we'll move for job relocation. So if there's a better uh, vocational opportunity that would be more exciting for us or a better paycheck, we may relocate for family. But the category of relocating for friendship is, I think, just incredibly rare. And, and for him to kind of give that advice is very different than the way we talk today. And uh, so I think one of the ways in which we see this is, is an initial valuation standpoint, and then that affects how we practice it. So as I think about even what we see happening in the Bible and different parts of history in today, one way to contrast it is to say, you know, if we kind of put friendship into two categories, there's consumer friendship and then there's covenantal friendship. And so in the Bible, this idea of a covenantal friendship comes from David and Jonathan, where they actually made a covenant, a covenant of friendship together. Now, I don't, I don't think that we need to necessarily have every friendship having a formalized covenant, but what that shows us is this deep commitment that the friends had. So I've I've heard people say often, you know, isn't the great thing about friendship that there's no strings attached? You know, you can you choose your friends, you don't choose your family. You can come and go. And really thinking about David and Jonathan's deep commitment to one another, the way that Proverbs talks about giving direct statements about the the value of sticking close to friends really shows this covenant-like commitment that it's not just you're there when it's easy, when it's convenient, um, you know, covenantal friends will stick together even when it's hard. They'll work through problems. They'll have to apologize and forgive one another. They show up in suffering. You know, covenantal-like friendship would be expressing something that we see in Proverbs where even one of the statements I was struck with was the direct command that says, do not forsake your friend. And a friend loves at all times and saying that in the context of suffering. So just thinking about how common it is for people to be hurt by friends just not showing up and suffering or really not even, we, we aren't talking at a soul to soul level enough to even know when each other is suffering to be able to move in. And then when we do find out someone is suffering, we might just say, hey, I'm there for you. If you need anything, let me know. And that's, of course, helpful, but there's a different kind of relationship level that you've reached when you don't just say you'll be there and you don't just offer to help, but you just know what your friend needs mm -hmm. and you just meet those needs and you just show up and you know whether they need you to talk or just listen at the time. So there's really just this contrast that we can see in, in church history and today in the Bible and today with this level of commitment and, uh, and connection. 
I don't really remember being taught about what you just said about a covenantal type of friendship. It seems like for my whole life, what I can remember is almost treating friendships as like you were talking about, you know, what's almost like what's convenient for me? Is it convenient for me to be have this person be my friend? Is this a mutually beneficial relationship? Not necessarily thinking about are these friendships meaningful? Am I sharing my heart with someone? Am I being vulnerable? And so it's just interesting to try to figure out like historically, when did that shift happen? I mean, can you in your research, did you at all notice a turning point where you thought maybe, okay, this is when individualism started really peaking and people started really being more self-oriented instead of others oriented in terms of friendship? Yeah, that's a great, a great question. And I think there are a few things that have happened. Um, individualism, like you mentioned, is, is a big part of this. A few things that have happened to make this shift take place. Um, so a few of them that come to mind would be one is, you know, a shift in the way that we experience relationships through technology. So technology has been a great gift in many ways. You know, I'm thinking about the ability to send a voicemail or send a text message to be connected on social media. That can be a great way to stay in touch with some people that we have been really distant with and otherwise wouldn't be in connection with. But what it can do is it can also cultivate a reliance on less personal ways of communicating, uh, less fully embodied ways. And so we then settle for staying in touch, having a, a, just a loose connection on social media, you know, seeing people send out notes to the world and feeling like we're, we're getting the information about their life. Therefore, we feel relatively connected. And then that kind of pushes out this felt need for actually knowing them personally and, and spending time and sharing experiences. So I think that's part of it. Another thing that happened is we've become very mobile as a society. So I moved around several times throughout my life. And when you move around, you, you, you're faced with a couple fresh challenges. One is how do I not only just maintain, but keep cultivating the, the deep friendships I had in that previous location I lived, where I was able to have more natural shared experience and life on life relationship and time with people? How do I maintain those past friendships and keep them growing? And then how do I jump in and start fresh where I am? And if you move around a lot, like some people have, you can actually uh, get tired of that trying to put your roots down only to have them uprooted again, especially if you know you're going to uproot again in a couple years, you can you can kind of think, what's the point in trying? Mm -hmm. So mobility is a big part of it. I think overall busyness would be another reason we, we really have valued as a culture work, and I think family is actually a declining value as well, but, but especially among Christians, we often still value it. So work and family take up a huge portion of our, our heart's value and our time commitments, and then we don't feel like we have any time left, and we were already feeling like, I don't have time for myself left, so, so where am I going to fit friendship into my life? And uh, if we don't value friendship, we'll be content to say, I'm, I'm doing a good job with work. I've got time with family. That's enough. And so we can just feel busy. And even just the perception of busyness can hinder friendships. I had someone tell me, they said something like they stopped asking me, or they actually didn't reach out to me to ask me to spend time with them at different times because they just figured that I was too busy. Mm. Um, and and there, there's plenty of times where I wasn't. And, and the truth is so many of us are busy with entertainment. I mean, just look up the stats of how many hours a day people spend with entertainment on TV or, or their screens. 
we actually do have time, but even if we are really busy, that perception can hinder people from even reaching out and wanting to pursue friendship. And so those are those are really big factors, I think. Um, and there's different factors with men and women as well. Um, I was just thinking recently about how male friendship has changed in our culture as well. And I think there are significant shifts that have taken place in our view of masculinity that push um, certain qualities like affection and transparency. We, we've kind of pushed those to become exclusively feminine characteristics. And so men feel like those shouldn't be part of what it means to be a man, which is actually historically completely new. There, there's a, a fascinating book called The Overflowing of Friendship that a sociologist wrote about male friendship in the early founding era of America. And the way that men talk to each other as just friends sounds to us like there must be something sexual going on. Mm -hmm. But the historian who wrote this, the sociologist, he's actually very much aware of uh, kind of sexuality and the, the development of that. He's not a believer. And he says, listen, we cannot read back our context into that. There was not a hint of sexuality stuff going on there. This is just what normal friendship sounded like back then for men. Wow. So I think those shifts have really caused us to have a, a more superficial expression of friendship. And so all of this has really happened. These trends and shifts have happened in significant ways in just the past either you know century, century and a half, or just the past few decades. And so we're really in a moment where we shouldn't be surprised at the decline of real personal friendship. I really appreciate that you just mentioned the part in the book where you talked about how busyness is really an obstruction to friendship. And I think, I don't have it right in front of me, but you said something that just gave me what I've said on the show, I call it a holy smackdown. So it's like this, wow. this sting of conviction. That's really good. You know, it's good to get that holy smackdown, but it still kind of hurts a little bit. And you said something like, nothing says we can't be friends more like sure let's get together how about next month or something right. like that and i i've done that not on yeah. purpose like but literally just looking at my schedule and my mm -hmm. deadlines and my my family commitments and making sure i have time to rest and that i'm not overstretching to where yeah if you want to get together for coffee we'll have to set something up in like three weeks <laughs> you know right and so that's hard it's hard to see that and then take a look at yourself and say you know what friendship is just not on my radar I'm so busy trying to figure out how to have good relationships with my husband and with my kids right. and be a faithful church member that it definitely is true, at least for me, that friendships just fall way down on the totem pole. So that, I just really appreciated your honesty and when you shared that because it spoke directly to me in my experience. Now, as we record this podcast about friendship, much of the world is experiencing some level of quarantine or lockdown because of the coronavirus pandemic. How does something like social distancing serve to expose the importance of meaningful face-to-face -face relationships? We are in a, in a really interesting moment. You know, I think some people are realizing that their life hasn't changed much, honestly, and I think that itself can be surprising. You know, what do you do when the culture's saying we have this terrible situation where we can't be with each other and we have to stay all this apart. And then some people are thinking, not much in my life has changed, honestly. I mean, that actually is a common theme. I think that itself can cause people to wake up and think, is that the way it should be? Should my life be relatively unaffected by the fact that we have a, a kind of a nationwide lockdown where we can't spend time with people? Um, so that's part of it, just kind of a waking up to kind of rethink it. And then, but for, for many other people, whatever contact we did have throughout life um, in face-to-face -face relationships, kind of having fully embodied presence, 
so many people are recognizing the deep loss of this mm -hmm. and they're starting to realize explicitly just how valuable it is to look someone in the eyes, not just through a screen, but in their presence and spend time with them and have experiences together. And people are really feeling the loss of this. And so I think it, it does expose for us just how valuable face-to-face -face embodied relationships are and therefore how much we're missing it right now. Can you share how the Bible regards the necessity of friendship? Because again, I didn't grow up really with this understanding and it really wasn't even until, to be honest with you, Drew, I read your book that I had, I just didn't even realize that the theme was so woven into the scriptures. And so I'd love for you to take a few minutes just to give the listeners kind of a, a brief overview of what the Bible has to say about that friendship isn't just a good idea or something that is like a luxury, but it's actually a necessity. So we can we can dip into a few places in the Bible um, to see this, and then it's really spread throughout. So even if we start on the first pages of the Bible, what we find is, you know, Genesis 1 through 3 describes, you know, we can call it the creation account. In Genesis 1, God creates uh, the world and just fills it with, just it's teeming with life. So he's separating sky from sea to land, and he fills it with communal life. Um, where there's just filled with, with these creatures. But then when he makes humanity, he makes them also communally. He says he's making humanity in his own image. And then he call, calls them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So humanity should have this multiplication, filling uh, sense of filling the world with communal life. But then when we get to Genesis 2, uh, the author, Moses, rewinds back into that creation week when God created humanity. Uh, Genesis 1 describes how just male and female were made. Adam and Eve were made in commission. But then Genesis 2 rewinds to explain the process, and it shows how God started with Adam. And when he started with Adam, it said, it is not good that man should be alone. And that's a really striking statement because it's before sin entered the world. And so you know, the, the creation account so far has been filled with God made this and he saw that it was good and it was good and it was good and it was good. And then we hear ha have something that's not good, but yet there's still no sin, which shows us that the deepest problem in the world is sin for sure when it comes. But the first problem in the world was solitude. Mm. The first problem was isolation, social isolation, um, not idolatry, even though that will be the deepest problem. And the reason for this is because we're made in God's image. So God is the triune God of relational love. He's eternally existed in a community of love, Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, the, the Apostle John says God is love, which implies that he's relational. And so that means we were made for relationships and to be made in God's image, to be made relational. And so really, we this is important both vertically and horizontally. We're made to know God and made for friendship with one another. But here Adam is in the garden with God's presence, and God himself self says, Adam, with God, with paradise, it's still not good because there's not human community yet. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so then God goes on to make Eve, and of course marriage is a significant answer to the communal problem that Adam has, but it's bigger than that, bigger than just the need for marriage, it's the need for community in general for all of us. And so then from there, the Bible shows how when sin enters the world, it just fractures friendships. It's why friendship is so hard. Sin is, is isolating. We curve in on ourselves and we seek ourselves rather than the good of others. So human friendships broken, the friendship and relationship with God is, is broken and needs to be restored. And then we see that the plan of redemption is really about God restoring friendship to himself 
and restoring people to be true friends to one another. And so then we get glimpses through the Bible of this, of God befriending people like, um, you know, it says Enoch walked with God, and that's a relational, Hebrew relational image. And Abraham was a friend of God, and he spoke with Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. And then at a human level, we see David and Jonathan as male friendship and Ruth and Naomi as a beautiful example of female friendship. And then when we get to the, the middle of the Bible, Jesus, he comes as the friend of sinners to befriend us. And he calls the cross uh, really a cosmic act of friendship. He says, greater love has no one than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends. And so on the eve of the crucifixion, he wants his disciples to know that they are his friends and that he's going to do the greatest act of love, the greatest act of friendship, which is to lay down a life, his life for friends. And he does that for us. And then through the resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit, he creates a new community, and the book of Acts shows the, the one another's happening in the New Testament of forgiving one another and bearing one another's burdens and having all things in common. There's this rich life of communal love, and those are deeply relational. And then when we get to the, the end of the Bible, we see that it's not just us in heaven in isolation with the Lord, but it's a new creation of human flourishing where God himself is with his people and all his people are together as true friends. And so the Bible kind of gives this big overview of the significance of friendship, and then it calls us throughout to pursue this as a necessary part of life. Like I mentioned Proverbs earlier, don't forsake a friend. A friend loves at all times. And in the New Testament, you know, the book of Hebrews saying says, to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that no one may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So there's this idea in the New Testament that a once a week gathering, and then even adding a, a small group time in that, in that week is not enough. We need a daily exhortation and encouragement. And if you just think practically what that looks like, you can't do that with three other 300 other people. Mm -hmm. You can only do that with a tight tighter group of people or a few people. And so really the New Testament vision of the church is a community filled with overlapping networks of friendship, real true friendship where people are seeking to help each other grow as disciples of Jesus. And that that's actually a necessary part of how we grow in Christ and help each other grow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I am actually just in awe that you were able to trace the whole theme of friendship from Genesis to Revelation. That was just really astounding. So thank you for sharing that for me personally, but also for the listeners. Now, I want to point out, too, that there's a big theme in your book, and it seems to be derived from a statement that J.C. Ryle made about friendship, saying that it, quote, halves our troubles and doubles our joys. Would you help us understand what he meant when he said that? Sure, yeah, I love that statement. Um, you know, J.C. Ryle was a, a pastor, church leader in the 1800s, and that phrase itself came from a, a sermon he preached on friendship, and in particular, that sermon was about Jesus being the great friend. Um, and then he talks about friendship in general from, from that. And that statement seems to really echo what others have said throughout church history, he just kind of said it in such a beautiful way. But that kind of idea of friendship, having our troubles and doubling our joys has been a common thread here and there throughout history um, to capture the essence of friendship. And, and the fuller quote that he said, which I love, is he just talks about this world. He says, this world is full of sorrow because it's full of sin. Mm -hmm. It's a dark place. It's a lonely place. It's a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. And then he adds, friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. Wow. And so 
Well, I just love that for yeah. both its realism as, and its hope, because what he seems to be getting at is he knows exactly what so many of us know in the first half of that, that this world is dark and depressing and lonely so often for so many of us. We live weighed down with disappointment and depression, and yet God gives us the brightest sunbeam of friends, most of all the great friend Jesus, but then true human friendship. And so, especially for today with depression on the rise, it's so often connected to a lack of relational connection and encouragement with other people. People feel unknown in their troubles. And so for, for friendship to be a gift where our troubles are cut in half and our joys are doubled, it just seems like if we don't know experientially what that is, what J.C. Ryle's talking about there, then... We, I'm just encouraged because that means that we have we have so much hope ahead of us to experience that. It, it may be hard, and we, we may actually have disappointment and hurt from the past, but there's so much joy to be had in, in the rest of life moving forward uh, to pursue this. Oh, I think that you just closed that comment out with a really important statement because I think that people do get hurt with friendships that they thought were trustworthy or people that they thought they could confide in and then ended up getting hurt or betrayed or some other type of trauma occurred. And so it can be almost like a defense mechanism where we say, okay, well, if that's what friendship's going to be, I don't want any part of that. And so I'm just going to distance myself and let people only get so close. And so in some ways, we don't necessarily view friendship as a gift, but it's actually been a source of contention or it's been a place where we've just been hurt over and over again. But there's a section in your book called The Gift of Friendship. And in it, you wrote that, quote, many of us only know fast food friendship. We have yet to experience filet mignon friendship. Can you explain that contrast and offer insight as to how the scriptures encourage us to value the blessings of true friendship? Sure. Yeah. I mean, in our experience with food, we we all know, you know, what fast food food can be like. And, you know, it can be OK, but it's nothing that is going to sustain you over time. And if that's all you've experienced in life, actually, and someone's kind of cooking a great steak and has it in front of you, you may not even be intrigued or interested. But once you have it, you recognize there is a world of difference between a good steak and fast food. Um, and so I think for, for so many of us, we haven't experienced what that true experience of friendship can be like. And so we're hesitant to want to give the effort to try to make that happen and, and even push through the challenges and obstacles. And so, you know, someone even said recently to me that there was going to be a gathering of people together. And he just said, yeah, I don't go to those things anymore because, you know, conversation is just so superficial. So here's a guy who's kind of really isolated himself from even the opportunities to initiate and grow in friendship because of his experience of it being like fast food friendship. And so really then there, there's, a, there's an experience that we need to pursue of recognizing this is valuable and pursuing this with a lot of intentional effort and work. But there's great joy to be had. I think even of the Apostle John and what he wrote at the end of Second um, John, he said, that um, he'd rather not write to them with ink and pen. He wants to be with them face to face, that their joy may be complete. And so uh, that even has relevance to us today in this time of um, social distancing, because we recognize that paper and ink is not sufficient. Technology is not sufficient. We want to be face to face. And in the Apostles John's idea, uh, John's idea that that's actually where a completeness of joy is going to be found. Mm. There's there's something about joy being in its fullest expression when we're together 
pursuing real face-to-face relationship together. And so it's going to take work and intentionality and creativity to do, but it's worth pursuing. I know when I've spoken with my husband about this particular topic, we have kind of come to that place where we say, yeah, it just seems like nobody really puts effort into socializing outside of small group. And I think sometimes we can just be content to just say, oh, it's other people's faults that there's nobody wants to come and be my friend instead of taking up that charge to say, okay, well, maybe it's on me to do something. If I value friendship so much, then I should be willing to want to make an effort and put some thought behind how I can actually value friendship more in my life. So I appreciated that you offer a good amount of practical wisdom in this book to help people like me. You write, quote, Here's a myth about friendship. It just happens. And that quote, good friendships require cultivation. What are some practical things we can try to do to make changes in the way we are approaching meaningful relationships and friendships in everyday life? Yeah, so there's, it it will take a lot of creativity and perseverance, even as we put practical ideas in place. You know, it's kind of like if you recognize, let's say, let's say there's some secret that playing basketball is like the secret to a fulfilled life, but no one believes that. And so you're trying to get together and play basketball with people and they're not into it. Um, So part of it is, is we are pushing against a culture that doesn't quite value it. And so what we need to do is keep pressing in and model a better way and invite people into this. There's going to be a leadership dynamic that we all have to take to initiate this. But even with that mindset, a few of the most practical things we can do, one is to just whenever we can get face to face. Obviously, that's hard in this current situation, needing to have some social distancing and measure of quarantine happening. But getting face to face as much as we can, or at least thinking of are the ways of communicating with people along a spectrum and always pressing to the side of personal. So if we're tempted to send a text, why not give a call? If we're tempted to give a call, why not use some kind of a video call? If we're tempted to just do that, why not get together face-to-face somehow? And uh, when life goes back to normal, just pursue those kinds of face-to-face conversations. Second, I'd say a great context for that is food. I think a case can be made in the Bible that God has given food to us to cultivate friendship and community. It shows up in, in the covenant-making moments of the Bible, and there's, there's a lot of places. And so food just seems to be a natural place where community happens, where we don't have to just sit and stare at each other, but there's, there's an activity going on that we're enjoying, a gift of God, and it just facilitates relaxed, unhurried conversation. So I would say use meals as a way to cultivate friendship with people. And then building on that, whether over meals or other contexts, one of the best things we can do to take our friendships and move them a step deeper and closer is to ask good questions and to stay curious in the conversation. So it's often helpful to even just think of one or two go-to questions that work for you that you can bring up in conversations to help it go a notch deeper. Because if we don't take intentionality there, we all know that conversation can stay about just the latest news or what's going on at work at a high level, um, or maybe just complain about something or talk about sports where asking a good question 
shows people that you care about them and what's really going on in their life. And it creates an opening, a doorway to enter into a deeper kind of conversation about the things that matter in life. So for me, a few key questions I ask are, I just ask people, what are a few things on your mind these days? Hmm. You know, that just presses beyond the immediate circumstance and gets into their interior thought world where a lot of the significant parts of life happen for them is that they're processing it. And so what are a few things on your mind these days? I'll ask just also kind of the highs and lows question. We do that as a family. I do that other times without saying, what's your high and low today? But just what's in, what are you encouraged about recently? Or what's been discouraging for you this past week, if there's been something discouraging you? Or uh, you know, how are things going at home these days? Or how are things going at work or school these days? Or what are you reading recently? And how, what stood out to you from it? And then once they answer any of those questions, just stay curious, ask more questions, let it go from there. So that's a really good way to do it. And then two other things briefly. One would be establishing rhythms. You know, the things we value in life, we establish rhythms for. We, we build our lives around it. So if you value you know, reading the Bible and praying, you build a rhythm for that into your mornings, for example. If you want to exercise, most of us recognize that that's not going to happen in a consistent way if we rely on spontaneity when we feel like it. We have to commit to a schedule. If you value eating together as a family, you have to have a predictable time and pattern every day as a family. So with so much in life, we do this. So, so my proposal is build friendship into your schedule. Set a rhythm for coffee or breakfast or lunch or dinner with someone, or even just have a spot on your schedule where you say Monday morning's breakfast, Wednesday's lunch, Thursday's dinners. Those are the times when I am going to have people into my life and either eat out or invite people into my home or however we want to do this and get together with people and, and maybe having one or two close friends where you have them and a regular rhythm. So in my life, uh, my wife and I have Wednesday nights. We just call it hospitality nights. It's, it's a night that we have predictable to have people into our home. We have four kids right now. So having people over for dinner is a bit of an experience that mm -hmm. not everyone be ready for. So we often just wait till the kids are about ready to go to bed. And so we have people come over just for dessert or dessert and a drink. Um, a little bit later in the evening and we get together for an hour and a half or so. And we have that with people. We also, I have a, one of my closest friends I meet with every other Wednesday for coffee. And that's when we, you know, we share life a lot throughout the week, but that's a time where we have scheduled to make sure we don't miss important things in life, to make sure we're talking about how we're doing in the things that matter most to us in our relationships, our work, our family, our relationship with the Lord. And so having those rhythms are helpful. You can also think kind of year-long rhythms. I have a camping trip I take with good friends. We've been doing it for about 17 years now. We do that every year. Um, I have a rhythm of going fishing with a few other friends once a year as well. And I have a rhythm of seeing about three guys every three or four months. I have to drive three hours or they have to drive three hours for it to happen because we don't live together near each other anymore. Mm -hmm. But just we, we've built this rhythm. Um, and I can't tell you how much my week or my day changes after jumping into that rhythm and, and the, the next time I'm together with those friends or um, that, that regular meeting. It's just been such a joy to my life. And then I mentioned there were two things. So the last thing would be to oxygenate friendships with affirmation. Romans 12.10 calls us to outdo one another in showing honor. So to show honor is to express esteem for someone. And that can take a lot of different forms. I think affirmation is like relational oxygen. Without oxygen, we wither and we get tired. And so many friendships are tired and wither withered because especially male friendships are filled with sarcasm or friendships are filled with complaining. Um, and we lack the ability anymore to just look someone in the eye 
and say why we appreciate them or why we respect them or, or tell them we were so proud of them or something we appreciate about them or tell them we love them. And so I just think filling our relationships with oxygen, uh, the oxygen of affirmation, uh, makes them more enjoyable for everyone and it's strengthening and encouraging and that will give life to our relationships. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of those practical ways we can really cultivate friendships in everyday life. I think that those were really helpful just for me personally. And so I really am thankful for that. And also, I want to let the listeners know that getting a copy of your book, uh, there's all of these things and more, I think that they can derive from what you've shared in the book. And so I just want to make that comment real fast too. Well, before we close out our conversation, I want to have us take a few minutes to talk about the greatest friend that we have Jesus Christ. Can you describe what makes Jesus the epitome of a friend and what it looks like to intentionally cultivate our friendship with him? You know, it's interesting. And you just mentioned the book. As I've reflected just in these past, uh, the past time since I've written the book, the part that's been most encouraging to me through that season of writing it and reflecting on it still is really what, what the last chapter was, which is Jesus is the great friend. And so just continuing to think about him as the truest friend has been such an encouragement to me. You know, friendship, one way to define it is that it's an affectionate bond forged as we journey with truth and trust. And Jesus is the epitome of that. He forges an affectionate bond, this covenant with us, and it's filled with affection. He loves us from his deepest heart, and he journeys together through life with us, through every moment in the highs and lows, the valleys and the open sunshine, with truth and trust. He always speaks the truth to us and in his word, and we can trust him with anything. And so Jesus himself, you know, the night before he died, talked about how he was the truest friend to his disciples. He says, I've called you for my friends because I've made known to you everything the Father's shown me and told me. So he's being transparent. He's opening up his heart. He's sharing himself with us. And we get that through the word. Even that evening in John 13 to 17, it describes Jesus opening his heart to the disciples. And he sent the spirit to have that recorded for us to have so that we can know his deepest heart. And then he also lays down his life for us in self-sacrificial friendship. So he dies for our sins and he still lives moment by moment to intercede for us, to forgive us for our failures, to comfort us by his spirit. He's, you know, on the edge of his seat, as it were, waiting to return because he said he can't wait to be with us. He said that that evening as well, that he longs for us to be with him where he is to see his glory. And so Jesus has a heart of deep affection for us and he's committed to us. He's constant. He's transparent. He wants to spend time with us. So really, when we think about what it means to cultivate then friendship with him, a first step is, is receiving him as a friend. You know, we talk about receiving Jesus as our Savior and Lord, the one who rescues us from our sin and the one who calls us to follow him as, our, as king. Jesus also gives himself to us as a friend to receive. And so one author from a couple centuries ago, Walter Marshall, said that justification, God declaring us righteous because of Christ. Justification is God's way of taking you into friendship with himself. I love that. God forgiving all of our sins through Jesus, that's his way of not just letting us stand in an abstract state of being forgiven. That's his way of bringing us to himself. So we trust him and then we relate to him moment by moment. We read his word, we meditate on his word because that's him speaking to us as a friend. And then we pray and, and we speak to him 
as friends. These aren't just kind of religious activities or disciplines merely. These are ways of relating to the Lord Jesus and the Father on terms of friendship. And then we obey him, even obedience. It's been so helpful for me to recognize that Jesus himself framed obedience as a friendship category. He said, you are my friends if you do what I command you, which what he's saying there is, you prove to be my friends if you if you obey me. And, and really, all true friendship has this dynamic where true friends do what each other says out of respect and love for one another, obviously not doing unreasonable things and sinful things. But when a friend asks you to do something, you love to serve them. And Jesus himself, he's our friend, but he's also our king, and so he can command us. And so I love in David and Jonathan's relationship, David's the true king, Jonathan is the true friend, and then David um, and Jonathan are together, and Jonathan says to David in a time of need, whatever you ask, I will do for you. Mm. And so I think that's how we are with Jesus. Because we love him so much, because he's loved us so much, we say to him as our friend and our king, whatever you say, I'll do for you. Whatever you call me to, I'll obey you. Because we're friends, and you're my king, and I trust you. That's so good. Well, I want to close this out by inviting you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who realizes they haven't valued friendships as much as God has intended them to. Maybe they've been wounded by people in the past, and as a result, they've kept people at arm's length in order to avoid getting hurt again. What would you say to this listener to encourage them to trust God as they take the risk of exchanging shallow acquaintances for true friendships? Yeah, I think, first of all, if you feel that way, you might feel like you're an exception, but you're not alone. So much in our world is about people projecting the good life, whether or not they're experiencing it. And so on social media, we see people with pictures of friends. We see people relating together in a, in a room with friends, and we can feel like we're the only one who doesn't have this, but you are not alone. It is incredibly pervasive, and so, so many of us, all of us, feel the lack of this at some level. And if you feel like you've been deeply wounded and hurt, um, you're not alone in this either. I'd also say to go to the Lord with this. Peter calls us to cast our anxieties and burdens on the Lord because he cares for us, which means, you know, we don't, we aren't having to do this in order to get him to care for us. He already does, even when we're not bringing him our anxieties. And so it's just a welcome from the Lord to say, I already care for you. I see this burden. Bring this to me. And the Lord values this for you. He value, He made you for friendship. And so ask him. Ask him, if you've never directly asked him, to bring a true friend into your life. And then know, as you step into different contexts, um, one of the most encouraging things to me when I've felt lonely and, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm walking into a room and I figure, you know, I'm, I'm assume my default posture in my heart, whether true or not, is that people would rather I wasn't there. And so what I've had to learn is to know I'm walking into this context with the Lord Jesus, the truest friend, already with me, which means I don't need to enter the room as needy anymore for friendship. I now have the truest friend with me and I'm relating to him on terms of friendship right now. And so I can move into this conversation or into this room, not seeking so much to find a friend, but to be a friend. How can I express to someone else who may be lonely here 
how the Lord Jesus is caring for me. And so some of the best advice we can have on friendship is to not focus so much on getting friends, but on being a true friend and walking into a room and looking for the loneliest person there and walking up to them and being a friend to them um, and expressing that true friendship to them. And then all the while praying that the Lord would, would make some connections as you do that so that you would have true friendship as well. Thank you so much, Drew, for sharing those encouragements with us. Now, if somebody listening today wants to get connected with you, they're interested in your ministry and they want to follow and see if you have other upcoming projects or articles or sermon messages, is there somewhere they can follow you online? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm on Twitter and they can look me up at Drew F. Hunter on Twitter and I'll post anything that um, will be coming out um, and stay connected through there. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Drew, for taking time out of your day. I was super encouraged by the conversation, and I hope that it serves the listeners well and that they are inspired to dig a little more deeply into this particular topic to enrich their lives and to purchase a copy of your book. So if you are interested in learning more about Drew's book and about how to connect with him, you can scroll down to the show notes. There is a link there that you can click that will take you to the page where you can access that information. Thanks again, Drew, for joining us today. I really appreciated that you taking the time to chat with us. Oh, well, I'm glad to join you. And I feel like even just having this conversation, I'm reminded of the value and needing to kind of relearn and retake um, initiative and steps in this in my own life. So I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk about it together. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.